Good morning. Welcome. Good to see you this morning. If you're a guest of ours, we are honored to have you with us today. A lot of places you could be today. I'm glad you chose to be with us worshiping God. Before I get started, just let me say on behalf of myself and my family how thankful we are for just the outpouring of love that this family has shown my family in the recent passing of my mother. Yesterday's uh, celebration of life, I want you to know that we saw every smile and we felt every hug and we have appreciated every prayer that has been offered on our behalf. And um, for those of you who went so far above and beyond, thank you. We're humbled and, and blessed to be a part of this family. I love this church. Hey, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. We're working our way through the book of Acts. Last week we, we got to Acts chapter 5 and we looked at a husband and a wife team who were trying to scam God. Remember we talked about Ananias and Sapphira and I mentioned the two points of they didn't fear God and they didn't fool God. And they tried to deceive God, they, they, they lied to, to God and because of that God struck them both dead. And it could be said that Ananias and Sapphira both died of heart disease because their hearts weren't in the right place. And when you live your life when your heart not in the right place, it's a dangerous way to live. Now today in Acts 5, we're going to take a look at a couple of people whose hearts are really 180 degrees removed from where Ananias and Sapphira's hearts were. We're going to look at some men who were fully devoted to Jesus. We're going to see that that devotion came at a cost. But it also came with some blessings. I don't know if it's true of all preachers. I suspect for the most part it is. But one of my real challenges preaching week to week is, what do I preach about? Now you would think that would be easy, right? Because there's so many things to choose from. But I really struggle with, okay, what do I preach about? Even when we're going through a textual study like this, I, I kind of struggle with, okay, where do I stop, drop anchor, and spend some time? Because I don't want to go so slowly that it gets boring and tedious, but then I don't want to go so quickly that you know we miss some really important things. I don't think the Apostle Peter ever had that problem. Peter seemed to have one really good sermon, and he went with it. It's almost as if Peter just kind of uh, laminated his uh, outline. Because he seems to be preaching the same sermon over and over and over again. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5. He just keeps preaching the same sermon. Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, he preaches it before this huge multitude of people. Chapter 3, kind of an impromptu sermon after a, a miracle is performed. Uh, chapter 4, sort of in a defense, um, standing before the council. And in every instance, his message is exactly the same. The outline never changes. You know, his PowerPoint presentation is the same sl three slides. So, if this morning's sermon sounds familiar to you, blame Peter. It's not my fault. But apparently it's a pretty important message. A couple of weeks ago on Easter, we skipped ahead and we, we got to Acts chapter 5. 
and we looked at a passage of Scripture. I'm going to go back and revisit part of that passage, and I want to sort of attack it from a different angle this morning. You'll remember in Acts chapter 5, the apostles were, were preaching and teaching and healing people in the city of Jerusalem. Um, the religious leaders, they're upset that the apostles are drawing so much attention to themselves, especially upset that they're drawing so much attention to Jesus, and they decide we have to put a stop to all this Jesus talk. So Acts chapter 5, I'm picking it up in verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. Now you'll remember the Sadducees were the sect of the Jews who, among other things, did not believe in the resurrection. They believed that you know, when you died, you were dead like Rover, dead all over. Verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. My generation, I guess, is really the first generation that has been raised on television which probably goes a long way in understanding why my generation is so messed up. But actually, there's things that you learn by watching television. There's things that I have learned only because I will see it on television. For instance, I know that if I'm ever in a court of law and I am asked to testify, someone is going to ask me, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I know that happens because I've seen it on TV. And I also know that if I'm ever asked that question in a court of law, my answer better be, I do. Because when it's really important, when things really matter, people want the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In Acts chapter 5, God uses an angel to free uh, these two men. But the angel doesn't just set them free. The angel also gives them a message. Take a look at verse 19 again. During the night of the angel, the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. Tell the people the full message of this new life. I think if the scene had happened in a courtroom, the angel would have said, tell them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that's exactly what Peter and the other apostles are going to do. They are going to share the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Verse 21. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began teaching the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel and sent for the jail sent to the jail for the apostles but on arriving at the jail the officers did not find them there so they went back and reported we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors but when we opened them we found no one inside on hearing this report the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were puzzled wondering what could come of this Angel lets Peter and John out of prison. The next morning they are back in the temple courts telling people about Jesus. Meanwhile, the Sadducees have, have, have uh, convened the entire Sanhedrin. 
and they send for these two troublemakers who they are just sure are somewhere cowering, you know, hidden in the corner of a cell in the jail. You know, go bring them in. And the council sits very stern, very serious, waiting to dispense their justice on these two men, understanding that they're undoubtedly quaking in their tunics as they prepare to stand before the mighty Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin waits. And they wait. And they wait. And finally somebody shows up and says, uh, they're not there. Well, what do you mean they're not there? Well, the doors were locked, the guards were there, but those two men, they're not there anymore. And I'm sure the Sanhedrin thought, okay, I don't know what's happened. We had them, we lost them. They must be deep underground right now. They must be, you know, hiding out in a safe house somewhere, letting the dust settle, because we scared them pretty well. I don't think we're going to be having any trouble with them anymore. Then someone else comes up and says, hey, I know where they are. Those two guys were in jail last night. I know where they are. Where are they? You know, making a run for it, trying to disguise themselves? Uh, no, they're back in the temple. They're telling people about Jesus. The very thing that you told them not to do. You got to think to yourself, way to go, Peter and John. Yeah. Way to go, God, right? Verse 25. Then someone came in and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. So the apostles are brought back before the Sanhedrin. And I want you to think for a minute the mood of the Sanhedrin right here. Okay? They've been a little bit embarrassed in this whole thing. Uh, for one, an angel let Peter and John out of prison. That doesn't sit well. And it seems as if these men are kind of rubbing Jesus in their face, right? And they go back to arrest them again, and they're, they're sort of fearing for their own lives. They're, they're understanding that they're starting to lose control of the religious climate here in Jerusalem. Something's got to be done. It's got to be done quickly. The Sanhedrin is not in a benevolent mood when these men are brought back before them. Verse 27. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. The leaders tell these men, we told you not to talk about Jesus. And yet, you're filling Jerusalem with all this Jesus talk. Not only that, you are determined to try to make us guilty of his blood. Which I think is such an ironic thing to say. Because some of these men that were talking to the, the apostles here had to have been present in Matthew 27 when people were shouting to Pilate, let his blood be upon us and our children. I mean, it wasn't so very long ago, they were ha more than happy to have Jesus' blood, you know, on their head. But now, not so much. Now, the hearts haven't changed, just the political climate in Jerusalem has changed. So here's these apostles, these just ordinary blue-collar guys. They're not intimidated by the council. They're going to listen to the angel, who of course is listening to God. They're determined to share the full message of this new life. And they're about to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. 
Peter stands up with the other apostles in verse 29 and said, here's the truth. We must obey God rather than man. Let me tell you the truth. We must obey God rather than man. Now, this should sound familiar to you because Peter said almost exactly the same thing a chapter ago in chapter 4 before the same group of people when he said, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about the things we have seen and heard. Peter said it in chapter 4. Now he says it again in chapter 5. Here's the truth. We must obey God rather than men. Truth doesn't change. What was true in chapter 4 was still true in chapter 5. A lot of people will try to tell you, well, truth is sort of a relative thing. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Because what's true for you might not necessarily be true for me. And what's true in this situation might not be true in another situation. And what was true ten years ago isn't necessarily still true today. But Scripture tells us that there is such a thing as absolute truth. There are things that are true for all people, in all situations, for all time. Peter says what's true in chapter 4 is still true in chapter 5. We must obey God rather than men. Here's the truth. God demands obedience. God demands us to be obedient to Him. He doesn't just suggest it. He doesn't just expect it. We are demanded by God. We are commanded by God to be obedient. Jesus Himself would say in John 14, If you love Me, you obey what I command. The truth, the absolute truth, is God demands obedience. He rewards obedience as well. Peter and the others stand up and say, here's the truth. We're going to obey God, not man. Now, here's the whole truth. Verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him to His own right hand as Prince and Savior, that He might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. You want the whole truth? Jesus died on a cross. And it was your sin, it was my sin, that put Him there. God brought Him back to life. And today He sits at the right hand of God as Prince and Savior. And because of that, repentance and forgiveness are available. That's the whole truth. Sound familiar, by the way? <laughs> Peter said the same thing in Acts chapter 2. He said the same thing in Acts chapter 3. He said it in Acts chapter 4. And now here he is again in Acts chapter 5 with the exact same message. As this brand new group, this community of believers, as the church is starting to gain traction, there is a theme that is obviously uh, important and specific to the apostles' teaching. And that is, Jesus is Lord. Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth. He was put on a cross. Our sin put Him on the cross, but God raised Him from the dead. And one day, He's coming back. Today, He's Prince and Savior. That's what the apostles wanted people to know. But I remind you of what the angel said. 
Tell the people the full message of this new life. Tell them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So here's my final point, and it is nothing but the truth. The gospel's good news. The gospel of Jesus, the message that the apostles were sharing is good news, and it's good news for everybody. Chapter 5 ends with these words. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They had them flogged. They were beaten and ordered not to talk about Jesus anymore. Things seem to be getting worse for the Jesus people in Acts chapter 5, right? I mean, two chapters ago, some of them were arrested and threatened. Now we see they're arrested, they are beaten and threatened. Two chapters from now, we're going to see Jesus' followers are going to start being put to death because of their belief in Jesus. Things are getting worse. There's absolutely no cause for joy. But 41 says the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. They left that group, that situation, and they were rejoicing. You know, the Sanhedrin had a lot of surprises in this text. A lot of things happened that the Sanhedrin did not see coming. They didn't expect the apostles to escape from prison. They didn't expect them to go right back and start doing the very thing that got them arrested in the first place. They certainly didn't expect, nor did they intend, to leave them on their way rejoicing. But the Bible says they left rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They told the truth. They told the whole truth. They told nothing but the truth. And they didn't stop. Verse 42, day by day in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Day after day, public places, house to house, they just never stopped teaching and telling the good news that Jesus is the Christ. See, I think that's what the angel was talking about when he let them out of prison. Tell people the full message of this new life. The full message of this new life. Christianity is a new life. It's a new existence. A new reality. It is a better existence. And a better reality. And that new life is only available through Jesus. You, know, you think about the life that you want. And I mean the life you really want. And when it's just you, you put your head on your pillow at night, you think about the life that you really want. What's the life I really want? Think about your marriage. What's the marriage you really want? You think about your family. What's the family I really want? You look back over the last few years and think, I don't know, you know, me and my spouse, we, we seem to be drifting apart. I don't know, our family seems to be, you know, getting farther apart, not closer together. No, I want my marriage to be someone, something that I'm falling more and more in love with my wife every single day, and I want my, my family to get drawn closer together every single day. That's, that's what I really want. Now you think about other relationships. What kind of friends do I really want? I want friends that love me, that I love, that I can trust. 
What about you? What kind of person do I really want to be? What kind of person do I really want to become? I don't think any of us would say, well, I want to become more cynical. You know, I, I want to be angry. I want to have a worse temper. I want to be hard to get along with. I want to be hard to deal with. No, we all intellectually, we know, I want to be kinder. I want to be more compassionate. I want to be more forgiving. That's the life I really want. And I'm about to tell you something that you already know. The life you really want is exactly the life God wants you to have. That's the life God wants you to live. That's why He sent Jesus. What's going on around us isn't what brings us joy. It's what's going on within us. By the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what brings us joy. And of course, it's one thing to intellectually believe you know, in Jesus and believe those things, but it takes a commitment. And it takes a decision and a relationship with Him to be able to experience the joy that these apostles experienced. Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's not me anymore. I'm not really even living my own life. It's Jesus. Jesus lives in me. That's the life I want. Can we have that life? Let me close with an illustration. And I've got to tell you, I really vacillated about sharing this illustration with you because what I'm going to ask you is, um, and not too many people are going to admit to it, okay? And it's not really socially acceptable to admit to what I'm about to ask. But does anyone in here besides myself like the Rocky movies? Anyone? Sylvester Stallone? Okay. I, I, I'm going to admit, I like the Rocky movies. Martha, not so much. But I've seen all 38 of them. However many there are, I don't know. But if you remember back, the two of you that have been with me here on this, if you remember back to Rocky V, okay? Rocky is uh, an old guy. He's over the hill. He can't fight anymore, even though 10 years later he fights again. But... But in, in Rocky V, he's, he's past his prime. He can't fight anymore. But he takes under his wing this young fighter named Tommy Gunn. Remember that? And he mentors him, and, and he schools him, and he trains him. And Tommy Gunn actually becomes the heavyweight champion of the world. But he falls in with some bad people. He gets tied up with a bad promoter and some really bad uh, influences. And at the last scene of the movie, Tommy Gunn comes back to Rocky, and he's picking a fight with Rocky. Like in the street, he's picking a fight because he wants some respect. And he, he's trying to get Rocky to fight him, and Rocky's mumbling something that you can't understand, which is most of the dialogue in every one of these movies. But then Tommy starts making fun of Adrian, Rocky's wife. And Rocky says, yo, Tommy, leave Adrian out of this. And then he starts picking on his son, and that's all Rocky can stand. You know, very reluctantly, he takes off his coat. He walks through this door and he says, You want me? You got me. And they go at it in, a, in this alley. But it's, it's obvious that Rocky's too old. He's over the hill. 
And this, this young guy is too strong. He's too good. And he just starts wailing away on Rocky. And he just beats him up one side of the alley and down the next. And then there's this obligatory you know, scene where slow motion... And Tommy comes across with a right hand, catches him right on the chin, and you know, in slow motion, Rocky goes back, and his eyes roll up, and sweat flies off his face, and he he's collapses into this pile of garbage, just pile of trash. And he's laying there with this big guy, you know, over him, and he tries to get up, but he can't. He's just beaten. He's had it. And then Rocky starts having visions. And he sees himself defeating Apollo Creed in Rocky II. And he sees a vision of himself defeating Clubber Lang, you know, Mr. T, in Rocky III. And he tries to get up, but he can't. He's just too beaten. And then he sees himself defeating, you know, the Russian giant in Rocky IV, you know, the machine that can't be beaten. And he hears the crowd yelling, Rocky, Rocky, USA. And he's trying to get up out of the garbage pile, but he can't. He's just beaten. And he's about just to give up. And then he has one last vision. He sees a man. You remember his old trainer, Burgess Meredith? He sees Mickey. And Mickey looks down at this beaten guy and he says, Rock. This is Mickey. Mickey loves you. Get up and fight. The fight's not over. And then the music starts. Low and slow. And Rocky starts to pick himself up. And the music gets a little louder. And he says, yo! Tommy, the fight's not over. And they go back out it. And, and of course, this time, Rocky just pummels him. You know, he just beats him up one side of the street and down the other, and he obviously wins the fight. Now, most of you are way too sophisticated for that illustration. But for some of my less dignified friends out there, and you know who you are, you're the ones with a lump in your throat right now, trying to fight back the tear, going, that was a great movie, I love that scene. <laughs> Let me tell you the point I'm trying to make, and I hope it's not too much of a stretch, and I really am serious right now. All the positive thinking in the world couldn't get Rocky back on his feet. Focusing on his past successes didn't get him back up. Focusing on his past failures didn't get him back up. You know what got him back on his feet? You know what got him back in the fight? It's when someone that he loved, someone that loved him in a way that he'd really never been loved before, someone who came back from the dead, to say, hey, I love you. Get up. The fight's not over. That's what got him back on his feet. I think that's what motivated Peter and John. They knew the resurrected Jesus. They knew someone who came back from the dead that loved them 
and proved it to them. It had the power to change their lives. And I think we need that same realization, that same understanding, that same vision, if you will, of of a risen Savior who sees us right where we are, laying in our own trash pile of sin and failure, and tells us, I love you. Get up. The fight's not over. I don't know where you are today. Maybe you are riding a wave. Congratulations. Praise God for it. Chances are some of you feel like you've been beaten up one side of the street and down the other by Satan lately. Chances are some of you feel like you're laying in a trash pile. Let me share some good news with you. We must obey God rather than man. And at just the right time, at just the right time, when we were down and we were bloodied and we were beaten, at just the right time, Jesus died for us. And one day, He's coming back. The fight is not over. And that's the truth. The whole truth. And nothing but truth. Let's stand and sing.